I am not Pastor Evan. My name is Alberta Clinton. I am one of your deacons, and it is my honor to read the scripture today. Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and when he went into the Pharisee's house, he reclined to dine. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, hence she has shown greater love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, forgives little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen and good morning. When you are anticipating me and you get Alberta, I would say that is a good surprise. So thank you, Alberta, for sharing the scripture with us this morning. You know, when I was uh, first starting out preaching, the hardest part of Sunday mornings for me was always right after the sermon, after the service, because I, I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, you would go and you would stand there and people would come talk to you and I'd be coming down from, from preaching and I'd have like adrenaline in my veins and I'd be kind of jittery and like not know what to do with my hands and certainly not know how to handle any social interactions at all. One time Brittany was standing there with me and she said, I don't think you realize that what you are communicating with your body is probably not what you mean to be communicating. Like I would be saying really nice things, oh, it's wonderful to see you, kind of like this, right? Have you been there? 
Unfortunately for me, as a speaker, some research shows us that up to 75% of information that is retained by an audience from a speaker is nonverbal. It comes through body language, visuals on a screen, the way we move or don't move. Our bodies are always saying things. Do we notice it? Do we notice how the same way, just a touch, eye contact, sitting next to someone, presence of our body? can mean so much. Today, as we continue this series, Love God and Love Neighbor, we're going to look a little bit at what our bodies are saying about how we love our God and love our neighbor. We've been looking at stories in the Gospel of Luke, and we're using this little tool uh, to go with it that's in the back of your bulletin. It's this grid that we're going to put up here on the screen. Um, And this is our good neighbor, love God, and love neighbor grid. In the center is you. Around those are eight squares where you're going to write in the names of your eight closest neighbors, whether they're physical neighbors by your house, maybe you are in an apartment or a dorm and they're the closest eight dorm mates, apartment mates to you. Maybe it's the people around you at work. Write down those eight names. Why? So you can pray for them. If we are to love our neighbor, we understand that loving neighbors is way beyond just those who live right next to us, of course. But it also is those who live right next to us, and this is an exercise to help us know who they are to be present to our neighbor. So as we continue looking at Luke and these stories of loving God and neighbor, today we're talking about this loving God, loving neighbors with our bodies. I believe that what we do communicates how we love. So I want to go back to that story that Alberta read for us. Let me read Luke 7 again, verses 36 through 38. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And when he went into the Pharisee's house, he reclined to dine. And a woman in the city who was a sinner having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing them with ointment. A religious leader has invited Jesus over for dinner. And as Jesus came to recline at the table, this woman arrives, and she is a sinner. At this time, when you would host someone in your home, generally dinners happened at this kind of U-shaped table. And traditionally, the hosts would sit there in the middle as the guests would gather around them. They would recline at the table, and their feet would be away from them. So this is a tapestry that gives an illustration of kind of what this might have been like, what this might have looked like. Jesus reclining at the table, everyone's feet to the outside. This woman approaches, and as she approaches, the first thing that she encounters is Jesus' feet. So there she is, literally at the margin of the dinner, and she begins to care for Jesus' feet. And do you hear how she was described? 
the woman who was a sinner. The label is attached to her like a name. Maybe the only name anyone even cares about because she's not given a name in this text. She's called a sinner. Have you ever been defined by your worst moments? Biggest mistakes or biggest failures? We don't know what this woman's sin is, but we start to imagine that's what people do. People throughout history have imagined what her sin might have been. What could it have been? We don't know, but she comes to the dinner. And it was a custom at this time that when you would have a dinner like this, you would allow people to come in. People from the street and let them have the leftovers. That's why this woman is able to come in, but she's not looking for any bread from the Pharisees. She's looking for the one they called the bread of life. She heard Jesus was there. Why did she come? She was known as a sinner. Why would she draw attention to herself? She was born into a culture in a time where to be a woman was to be at the bottom of the social order, unless, of course, you were a sinner woman. Whatever her sin was, it made her unwelcome. In the religious community, it was thought that sin was kind of like contagious, that if you were to be around someone who was unclean, that you would then become unclean because of your proximity. Sin was sort of like cooties, you know? Touch a sinner and you're unclean, so she carries this label sinner around. How did people look at her? What pain did she carry around? We can only imagine. Perhaps her sin is a result of her own rebellion. Perhaps she was left in a world with little support and little choice. She knows shame. But she comes to Jesus. She comes to Jesus while he was eating and she brings this expensive oil. Perhaps her plan was simply to anoint him with the oil. It would be an appropriate response to a prophet, but she goes beyond that, right? In the moment, she's so overcome, she begins to cry. And the text says she bathes his feet. That word bathe, it's the word that we would use to describe a rainstorm. I got soaked in one this morning. Can you imagine that amount of tear? The volumes of her tears speak to the volumes of her love. She undoes her hair, which was something not to be done in public. <laughs> she uses this as a gift to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. And she takes the oil, places it on his feet. What was it like? As she served her Lord in that moment with everything that she had, no basin of water, so she used her tears to wash his feet. Can you imagine what it must have been like? She held his feet in her hands. What must his feet have looked like walking so much as she cared for them with tears and hair and oil, oil used for healing, the ointment on the wounds on his feet. 
She uses everything that she has to respond to the one who loves her, and she never says a word. Something has happened here. <laughs> when she comes and sees Jesus, we're not sure what yet, but she responds with this depth of affection and adoration. She's so overwhelmed that her body, which carried labels and received looks, her body labeled a sinner. She brings her whole self before Jesus. She's unafraid to touch him, and Jesus doesn't stop her. Have you noticed that? I don't know about you, but if somebody just comes in and rolls up and touches my feet, I would stop them. I would be self-conscious and nervous. And Jesus lets her serve him. Let's her bring her whole self and express her love just like he welcomes us. He was not ashamed or embarrassed by her, neither are you. I love that Jesus isn't afraid of these cooties that others were. In fact, it seems like the only transfer that happens in this moment is a movement of love and grace that flows from Jesus to her, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time Ever, she knows she's loved, forgiven, welcome. The text says forgiven. Jesus will say you're forgiven. You could translate that word also as released. What a release it is to know that you are loved. You are whole. You are enough. You are forgiven. Your past doesn't define you. What a release it is to be seen and known fully by God and still welcomed. No wonder she weeps. Psychology has taught us that our bodies carry these experiences that we have, the traumas that we endure, that, that this affects our minds and our bodies. And here this woman responds to Christ fully aware of herself and her emotions. She doesn't hide them, ignore them. She brings them before the Lord and Christ welcomes them. What a gift. Russell van der Kolk, in the phenomenal book, The Body Keeps the Score, writes, in order to change, people need to become more aware of their sensations and the way their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. She is released. What do I feel in my body right now? Why? It's a question I've gone to when I've become overwhelmed. This woman takes this question, takes these emotions, brings it all before the Lord, and in that moment she knows she's loved in her bones, and so she releases the tyranny. He saw it, and he said to himself, I love that Luke gives us this glimpse into the Pharisee's mind, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is, and who is touching him that she is a sinner. He has already determined everything he thinks he needs to know about her, and so that causes him to determine what he thinks he needs to know about Jesus. Jesus can't really be who he says he is because then he would have known who this woman is and not welcomed her. He would have cast her away, but Jesus knew exactly who she was. And Jesus knows who the Pharisee is too. 
And so he responds in verse 40. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Can you imagine that? Like as he's thinking these things and Jesus is like, hey, Simon, (laughs) I have something to say to you. Teacher, Simon replied, speak. Jesus tells a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Which one will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, remember the table, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one whom little is forgiven loves little. Luke's now revealing so much we didn't know already in this story. We were busy observing the woman, and we had no idea that that this Pharisee had shown no hospitality at all, and Jesus reveals it. These were all the customs of what you did when you welcomed a guest. In fact, that the Pharisee neglected these customary signs of respect and care in this culture is a much bigger offense. (laughs) than any of the social no-nos that the woman offers in the moment. Luke wants us to see that the Pharisee, by the way he acts and the way he lives, by the way he uses his body, has totally demonstrated his own character, his own lack of love, and his own appreciation for the love of God for him. See, what we don't do also communicates how we love. This lack of love infected how the Pharisees saw Jesus and the woman. If we think about that that U-shaped table, the Pharisee likely in the center, and then normally would put the most esteemed guest closest to the center with him. By the way he's treated Jesus, it's likely that Jesus was off on the corner, right? So you've got to imagine the Pharisee in the center, Jesus all the way down at the end, and the woman then further away still. Most likely can't hardly see the woman at all. Maybe he saw her let her hair down. I doubt he saw her tears. He didn't know her, know her story, didn't care about her, didn't see her like Jesus does, didn't know the grief, the joy, the challenges. He was so secure in himself, he was so uninterested in Christ and his love. He reacts to her with disdain. I mean, he's achieved much, earned much. I mean, he gets to sit at the center of the table. He owns the table. Who is she? And what did he really need a Savior for anyway? I mean, I love that Jesus says, Look at the woman. Luke 7, 44, we'll read that again. Jesus turning towards the woman. So Simon, do you, do you see her? Do you see this woman? 
And then down in verse 48, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Notice those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sin? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that Jesus refuses to let the Pharisee be the center of attention, but focuses on this woman and tells her that she's been forgiven, released. That the label she carries, the shame that she has, the fears, the insecurities, the regret, she's released and loved and rescued, and she may go in peace. I don't know if she came into that room expecting to leave in peace. I don't know if she even knew what peace might feel like. But Jesus invites her to go free. Don't we want that too? I can't get past that image in my mind of Jesus there in between the woman and the religious leader. The gulf between them seeming so vast. When would Simon ever look at someone like her? He assumed she would make him unclean, hurt his reputation, mess up his life. And Christ there in the middle says, look. I don't know that it made a difference for them. They get busy being stressed about Jesus saying something like forgiving his sins and getting all technical and worried about semantics. But I hope that Simon maybe felt something in his body a call to a deeper love, a conviction by the Spirit of God, a desire to love God and neighbor more fully, an awareness of the depths of his own forgiveness. Perhaps for us, we find ourselves responding even in our bodies to people, situations, Why? What is Jesus saying to us there? Perhaps we even feel it about ourselves, like this woman. What might Jesus say to me and you? I don't know what you came into this place carrying this morning, but I want you to know that there is one who loves you and sets you free and invites you to live and go from here in peace. That's why at the end of the service here, every Sunday we say, go in peace and be the church because we need to be reminded of the one who sets us free and is still setting us free, the same one who set this woman free and who responded to that release with her very body, who preached a sermon with her hands and her tears in her hair. And so she goes in peace, going along preaching. <laughs> no longer held down by others' gazes or assumptions or nicknames, but carrying peace. I want to move through the world like that. Her very body testifying to the one who loved her. How do we respond to this love? Do we grasp it? Jesus here in this story observes this sermon 
in his midst than it is one preached by this woman with her body. Simon would have rather ignored her, but we hear her sermon still today. Still in a time and place where things are different, but large swaths of Christians still won't listen to women. We too can act in unlove and judgment, can with our bodies show how little we love or grasp how much we've been loved and forgiven. What sermon are you living? Augustine is believed to have said that our very lives can be a sermon. What are you preaching today? Jesus was a phenomenal preacher. But his greatest sermon didn't use words either. He used his body. His greatest sermon in my mind is not the Sermon on the Mount or the Plain, though they're masterful. It's not the stories or the parables, though they ooze with grace and hope. No, no, Jesus understood how to preach with his body. Can you see him in your holy imagination? Stretching out his arms before you on a cross, welcoming you in embrace. Can you see him? His own wounded hands anointing your wounds with oil, washing your feet with his tears. Can you see him doing whatever it takes to show you how much you are loved? So as he stretched his arms out and received nails in his wrists, as he watched those he loved abandon him, weep for him, Tie him up and kill him. His body was broken. Did you hear the sermon? He laid down his life. Did you hear what he said? He was placed in a grave. Do you see what he was preaching? He stepped out of the tomb. Did we say amen? How do we respond to the grace of this Lord? With dances, praises, our hands in service, a touch of comfort. This woman serves Jesus the way she is with what she has. What do you have? Maybe, just maybe, loving Christ with our bodies starts with loving the self that we have and knowing how deeply we are loved and cherished and welcomed by Christ. How might we respond to the sermon Christ preaches for us without words? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace and forgiveness of forgiveness that welcomes us to your table. God, I thank you that you are the God who casts out fear and shame. A God who conquers sin and death. And so God, as we think about this woman who used who she was and what she had to show her love for you, may you challenge us 
to wrap our minds around the love You have for us. Show us by Your Spirit the lengths You go to for us and invite us to respond back. To love You. Not just with what we say, but with our hands, our hair, our tears. Thank You, God, for the way that You have loved us first. Amen. I know the things that I've inherited, good and not all, sometimes not so good. I see the history that has shaped me, but also I know that the future is more malleable than we imagine. And this is what we find in Jesus' genealogy too. I think it is only fitting to let me have some women have the final word here. So here, from the Professor Tikva, Simone Friar Kinsey, and Pastor Gail Wallace from the Junia Project as they speak about Tamar. Tamar passes from the scene, but her impact continues. The, women who, the woman who transformed the history of the kingdom of Judah also transformed Judah himself. The rest of Genesis shows him back with Jacob's family. He betrayed Joseph out of jealousy, but, but henceforth will act out of loyalty to his family. He's even willing to stand up to the Egyptians to ensure their safety. After a dangerous detour, the actions of Tamar ensure that the house of Judah aligns once more with God's purposes. And as the prophet Zechariah says, from Judah will come this cornerstone. Tamar's tenacity and commitment to have a future for herself and her family points to God's great desires and purposes too. At Christmas, we celebrate that Christ has come because our God would stop at nothing to secure a hope and a future for you. May we be as committed to justice and the purpose of God as Tamar. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.